one announcement. The team from Kiev got back last night safe and sound. And for those of you who tend to show up only for the first hour on Sunday morning, I want to encourage you to stay for the second hour and uh, hear the report. Uh, Dan will be speaking, but each of the... Uh, each of those who went to Kiev will also be participating, so you don't want to miss uh, hearing all about what took pl- they went through the last couple of weeks. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we are prepared to study God's Word, so we always make sure that we are in fellowship. We have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to confess any sins to God in the privacy of your priesthood. Scripture says that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to forgive us from all Unrighteousness. At the instant that we admit or acknowledge our sins to Him, we are instantly restored to fellowship. We are, we can then resume the spiritual life. So let's bow our heads together for prayer and after a few moments I will open in prayer. Father, again, we thank you that we have this opportunity and freedom to gather together as a body of believers to fellowship around the teaching of your word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, that you are a God who is not silent, but a God who has spoken clearly and objectively to man. Father, we devote ourselves this time each week to worship you through the teaching of your word, because learning your word and applying your word is the highest form of of worship. Father, we're thankful that those who went to Kiev on this two-week missions trip were uh, returned safely to us. We thank you for the opportunity they had to go over there and to uh, teach and to share the gospel and to uh, have a tremendous time of ministry and impact on people who are from a culture and a background where there has been little, if any, uh, solid biblical teaching. We continue to pray for Jim Myers and all of those that are over there as they run a teen camp this week. We pray that you would make that a profitable time as they impact these uh, teens that come out for the camp and through them, their families. Father, we pray for this church. We pray that you would continue to uh, challenge us with your word, that you would continue to provide us with opportunities to 
make the gospel clear to those in this community. And we pray that you would continue to give us a, a vision for learning your word, teaching your word, and uh, proclaiming the gospel. We pray that you would challenge us with the things that we study this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. For the last two weeks, we have been studying the topic, the doctrine of the ascension of Jesus Christ. Now, this is a subject that is not taught that frequently, and its development is even more rare. And there are some reasons for that theologically that uh, have their roots in the Protestant Reformation and what took place after the Protestant Reformation. Last week and the week before, I briefly touched on the fact that there is a conflict between what is known as dispensational theology, which is a theological system that we believe in, and traditional covenant theology, which is the theological system that finds its roots in Calvin and the theology of both the French and Swiss Reformation, which later led, uh, later, later was developed in English Puritanism and Congregationalism. And what happened at the end of the Reformation was that that theology became calcified and solidified in the creeds that they developed. And you, you have to understand a little bit about church history, but they were involved in some tremendous theological battles. That was a time for where people in Europe understood that theology was important. People in America don't think theology is important. They want to make it something private as if it's irrelevant. But see, if God exists, then nothing else matters. And that is something you need to ponder a little bit, perhaps. If God does exist and God has spoken to us, then nothing else comes close to having uh, to being equal in significance to understanding God, His will, and His thinking. And for many people, they become so distracted with all the details of life and living that God somehow takes a back seat, if not somehow pushed into the trunk of our minds, so that we never give it any thought. But during the time of the Reformation, people knew that it was a, not only a matter of eternal life and death, but it was a matter of life and death on a day-to-day -day basis. If you were, for example, living in England during the time when Mary Tudor, known as Bloody Mary, came to the throne, where she burned at the stake over 300 Protestants because they refused to admit to the physical presence of Christ in the Lord's table, then you understood that you had to be very knowledgeable about doctrines such as the Lord's table and the Mass and transubstantiation and consubstantiation and issues that very few believers today really understand at all. We somehow think that we're more concerned with our emotions and that God would give us some peace and stability in our life and a little happiness, and, and we're so self-absorbed even in our approach to Christianity that doctrine takes a, a back seat. But during the time of the Reformation, they were fighting battles that literally meant their, not only their eternal life, but their physical life on earth. And so men such as Martin Luther, Jean Calvin, uh, Ulrich Zwingli, uh, Henri Bullinger, and others were uh, fighting battles related to understanding the doctrine of salvation. They, they took huge steps forward from where that 
theological system in which they had been born, which was Roman Catholicism. And I'm not bashing the Roman Catholics here, but at that time the Roman Catholic Church was extremely corrupt, and there were many problems in the Roman Catholic Church, and they were teaching that you could just buy your way out of purgatory, and so they were literally fleecing the masses all over Europe for every penny that they had in order to, you know, uh, telling them that they could by that, by giving up all their money, could buy the, their way out of purgatory and the way of their uh, ancestors out of purgatory. So as the 15th or as the 16th century progressed and they fought these theological battles, the issue at the Counter-Reformation became, okay, what do we believe in common with Roman Catholicism or with the, with the Catholic past, and what do we hold in distinction? So they developed these various creeds, and there was like the Heidelberg Catechism and various other creedal statements that they that were very well crafted. But one of the areas was that they did not differ from the Roman Catholic Church in terms of eschatology or of prophecy, and they continue to hold to the same view of prophecy that was taught in Roman Catholic churches, such as amillennialism. And they held to the same view of the church and identity of church and state, and they held to infant baptism and a few other things in common. But they had made some great steps forward. But what happened in the process of that time is that they, they thought that they had finally achieved truth. And so their doctrine became solidified at a time when the Reformation, which left the Reformation incomplete. And in, so when you sit down many times and you talk to somebody who comes out of a Calvinistic or Reformed background, they do not have any development of theology beyond Calvin or beyond the Reformation. Same thing's true with Lutherans. Well, the issue for them is, well, what did Calvin say? What did Luther say? And they don't move forward. Yet theology or our understanding of theology, our understanding of doctrine and the scriptures continue to advance on into the 18th and 19th century. And in the 19th century, you had the development uh, where it came to fruition in our understanding of uh, interpretation, literal interpretation, our understanding of God's plan and purposes for Israel, God's plan and purposes for the church were distinct. And this led to what became known as dispensational teaching. And in dispensational teaching, you began to realize that there is a unique plan of God for the church. Now, when you go back and you read the uh, Calvinist and Reformed theology, they mention the ascension of Christ, but they're unable because of their theological background and the, those theological glasses that they have to really understand the significance of the ascension of Christ. Now, lest you get lost, I have to keep going out and bringing you back to our study. 1 Corinthians 12 introduces spiritual gifts. Now, don't turn there in your Bibles because we're not going to be there for a while. Introduces the subject of spiritual gifts. There are two other key passages in Scripture that, address, Scripture that address spiritual gifts, and these passages are Ephesians 4 and Romans 12. Now, Ephesians 4 is import, important, and we're not going to go there this morning. Ephesians 4 is important because it connects the ascension of Christ to the giving of spiritual gifts. What this begins to open our eyes to is that the ascension of Christ is necessary for the church age to take place and is foundational to the uniqueness 
of the spiritual life in this church age. And so we have to gain sort of a big picture of what God's plan for history is and God's plan in this age is and how that relates to to um, the ascension. Now, if you go to Ephesians 4, don't turn there now, but when you look at Ephesians 4, and I'll repeat this again and again as we go through the passage, Paul starts Ephesians 4 with a very practical issue, and that is that there is some a problem of unity in the local congregation there in Ephesus. And so he's emphasizing the fact that we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Now, the problem of dissension in a local congregation and interpersonal problems or doctrinal problems or whatever is something that's common to every, every congregation, every church in America. And what Paul does, though, is he starts to address this problem of, of a lack of unity in the congregation, and he goes to the ascension. Now, see, the way that most of us think is if we've got a problem such as marriage or you have a problem with uh, people with with uh, uh, heresy in the church or a lack of unity in the congregation, what you're going to investigate is what's the problem, why can't you people get along, let's, uh, let's see if we can get together and just talk these things out. See, that's your modern psycho-babble heresy approach to problems, but that's not how... Paul or the Bible addresses a problem. As soon as you throw Paul the problem of a lack of unity, what does he do? Let's go to the ascension of Christ. Every practical issue in life is grounded in what we want to say as, as advanced moderns. What we want to say is abstract theology. But see, if you understand the Bible, there's no such thing as abstract theology Every doctrine has practical ramifications. So Paul just goes right back to the ascension and session of Christ as the ground for understanding why there should be unity in a local church and what the basis for that is. So that gives, in, in way of, by way of introduction, that gives an overview as to why we are studying the ascension and session of Christ in relationship to spiritual gifts. Now, in the last two lessons, what we did was address the question of why was the ascension necessary. And we went back into the Old Testament, and we showed, based on 1 Peter 1, uh, 20, that in the Old Testament there was a perception that there was a single advent of the Messiah a single advent of the Messiah, and when the Messiah came, he would, although the Old Testament talked about his suffering, it talked even more about the glories that the Messiah would bring with him and his kingdom, which he would establish uh, through Israel on the earth. And as the, as the scribes and Pharisees and uh, religious teachers of Jesus' day looked at the Old Testament, they did not discern that there was a difference between the first advent and the second advent. And I said that the reason was that Jesus would come as the Messiah and offer the kingdom. If, if they had accepted the kingdom, it's a legitimate offer, if they had accepted the kingdom, then the kingdom would have been established at that point, at the first advent. But because Israel rejected the offer of the kingdom and rejected the king, the kingdom is postponed. And you see this, this overview, this, this plan, this, this theme, thematic structure in all of the Gospels. We could graph it this way. 
at the beginning of the Gospels, you have the presentation of the king and the kingdom. This is when Jesus is addressing the nation Israel primarily. We saw this last time. John the Baptist is the forerunner to the Messiah, preaches the message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus came on the scene, preached the same message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is, change your mind because the kingdom that is the fruition of every hope that every Jew had based on the Old Testament is now here. The end of history is here. It is offered to you. You can bring in the glories of the kingdom right now if you accept the Messiah. Change your thinking in terms of your legalistic religious activity. And if you want to hear a few stories about what religion does to people, wait till the second hour when you hear the report from the team that came back from Kiev. They had some interesting uh, encounters with religion over there. Uh, religion is never the way to a relationship with God. Christianity is not a religion. It is a relationship based on the work that Christ does on the cross. See, religion emphasizes man's work, that somehow I'm going to gain approbation with God because uh, of my religious activity, my religious involvement, my moral life, my commitment to Christ, whatever it is. That's what impresses God. But Christianity teaches that God is not impressed with anything that we do. He is only impressed with what Jesus Christ did on the cross. See, the Scriptures teach that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. There is none righteous, the Scripture says. Isaiah 65, 6 says that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. The best that we do is nothing more than garbage in the sight of God. Therefore, he sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross as a substitute for our sins. He paid the penalty for our sins so that it is his righteousness, not our righteousness, that gives us uh, standing before God. That's what the Reformers understood, is that we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone, not justified by any actions that we do. But the Jews were seeking to be justified by obedience to the Mosaic Law and all of the traditions that were built up around the Mosaic Law. And there was a head-to-head confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. This led to a ultimate conflict in Matthew 12 when the Pharisees accused Jesus of casting out demons in the power of Beelzebul. That is the picture of the rejection of the king and kingdom. They accuse him of not being the Messiah, but being an agent of Satan. And then there is a shift that takes place in Jesus' ministry. And rather than teaching to the house of Israel and the house of Judah, which is what the mission had been before, he now begins to go to Gentiles and he changes the message. There is now a postponement of king and kingdom. And he introduces the mystery form of the kingdom in Matthew 13. We covered this last time. I just want to hit a few verses. In Matthew 13.10, Jesus had begun to speak to them in parables. And in Matthew 13.10, the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? This was new. He is now, before he had taught openly and directly, 
in the Sermon on the Mount. It was very clear, easy to understand, but now he is teaching in parables. And he answered and said to them in verse 11, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, that is, to you, the disciples. But to them, that is, those who have rejected the offer of the king and kingdom, it has not been granted. Jesus is making a a, a decision to exclude those who were negative. Now, this is a radical departure. This is not what modern, uh, uh, diluted, liberal Protestant theology teaches. They want to be inclusive. Jesus is exclusive. The Bible excludes people. It is not it is not inclusive. The offer is for all, but when that offer is rejected, there is exclusion. So Jesus is saying to the disciples, it has been given to you to understand these mysteries, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given. Because you've been positive, the more you study the Word, the more you will learn the Word. This is the principle. When you're negative, the more you reject the Word, the more uh, it will be difficult to understand the Word. Whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he shall have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has, shall be taken away from him. Therefore, verse 13, I speak to them in parables, Because while seeing, they do not see. While hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. They have the truth before them, but they can't understand it. They can't perceive it mentally. They don't see its application to them. Their thinking has been clouded by their own arrogance. And then in verse 14, Jesus says, And in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand, and you will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. This is a quote from Isaiah chapter 6. And in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, we read this. This is a warning, a prophetic warning from uh to the Jews, that there would be a time of discipline that would be brought on by their own rejection of the truth. Starting in Isaiah 6, 9, uh, he, which is Yahweh in this case, God speaking to the prophet Isaiah, go and tell this people that this people are the Jews. Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of the people insensitive. Now, What does he mean by that? It is the preaching of the truth that is in its rejection will bring about judgment on Israel. So God is basically saying to Isaiah, teach them the truth, and that will cause the people's hearts to be insensitive because they are negative. They will become spiritually dull and reject the truth. They're... um, Their ears will be dull, their eyes dim, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. And so Isaiah said, well, Lord, how long will this negative volition last? How long will there be this this discipline on the nation? And he answered, until cities are devastated and without habitation. Houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. This is a look forward to the time of the tribulation, that seven-year period of time following the rapture of the church that is yet future. 
Then in verse 12, The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion. And see, there is always hope in judgment. There is always grace that comes even in the midst of divine judgment. There will be hope for Israel. They will not all be destroyed. There is a future. So in verse 13 of Isaiah 6, God says, Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. In other words, there will be a remnant that trusts in Christ during the tribulation, and it is that remnant that will become the heirs to all of the promises and prophecies of the Old Testament. Now that we look at those two passages, what's going on? So we have to look at the Old Testament to understand what Jesus is saying in Matthew 13. The people wanted a glorious Messiah. Now, if you go back and you look at the Old Testament, you see that there are prophecies of a suffering Messiah and prophecies of a glorious Messiah. The prophecies of a glorious Messiah are much greater than proportionally than the prophecies related to a suffering Messiah. Now, why did God structure Revelation in that way? Well, I think the way he did that was because knowing the, uh, the, the predilection of the Jewish mind, he knew their arrogance, and that they would focus on the glorious Messiah as opposed to the suffering Messiah, and they would begin to reject the teaching about a suffering Messiah so that when the Messiah came and presented himself, they would reject him. And this would bring into focus for themselves and for all history the reality of their arrogance and their rejection of God. See, negative volition, especially when it is uh, clothed and cloaked in religion is very hard to ferret out. I mean, you look at the Jews when Jesus came. You look at the Pharisees and their devotion to the law and their their devotion to the synagogue and to the temple and to teaching. You would think, well, these people love the Lord. So God is going to show through the rejection of the Messiah that they don't love the Lord at all. They don't love the truth at all. They love religion and tradition, but they don't love the Lord. So in, in the sovereign wisdom of God, the structure of the Old Testament revelation is such that it will be misunderstood by negative volition and will lead to the rejection of the Messiah. So by the time Jesus came, the people were not interested in a Messiah that needed to suffer and die for sin. And so when Jesus began to point out the sin issue and that there needed to be a suffering Savior who would pay the penalty for sin, he was rejected. They wanted a glorious Messiah who would free them from bondage to the Roman Empire. So they rejected Jesus and their legalism and their religion had blinded their soul with scar tissue. And in that rejection, it led to Christ's crucifixion. They reject the king, and they crucified the king. Now that brings in a problem. The Messiah was to bring in the kingdom and was to establish the kingdom. But what do you do when the kingdom, when the nation that is to accept the king and establish the kingdom rejects the king and rejects the kingdom. This sets up a postponement in God's plan. Now, it's not a postponement from God's eternal perspective. 
in his omniscience, God knew exactly what would happen. But it is a postponement from within a temporal perspective, from a human perspective, because we did not know what to, what would uh, take place. See, the church age, the age in which we live, was not foreseen or foreshadowed in the Old Testament. There was this perception that there would be one coming, so there was a legitimate offer of the king and kingdom. But there's contingency built into the plan of God, and that contingency is a problem that Calvinism and Reformed theology has because they want God to be uh, complete control and to have decreed every detail in history and in life. But God builds contingency plans, hundreds of contingency plans into history, and this is one example. And see, this is one reason why, uh, uh, just to give you an illustration of how a theological system can so uh, put a straitjacket on the thinking of people that it uh, hinders any kind of real thought or understanding. The interesting thing, just as another historical note, the interesting thing is that all of the early dispensationalists in the 19th century came out of a strong Calvinistic background, but they rejected that uh, that strong creedalism that uh, characterized so much of uh, so much of Calvinism. So what happens is the Messiah is rejected, the King is crucified, the kingdom is postponed. So now, what's going to happen? There is going to be a new age that comes into history that that comes between the crucifixion of the king at his first coming and the return of the king and the establishment of the kingdom yet future. So the ascension of the Lord is necessary in order to establish this new, unique people in the church age because the people he came to establish the kingdom for have rejected him so he is going to call out a new people. Not that he has forever rejected the old people, but that he is calling out a new people that are specifically tied to his title of King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And what is happening in the church age is directly related to understanding what is happening in the current our time where Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, which is called the session. Session is from the same word as seat, and it is the idea that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father. So we have to understand the ascension of Christ and the session of Christ if we are really going to understand the uniqueness of the church age and your own spiritual life. See, this is why Paul comes to this in Ephesians 4. If you think globally about Ephesians, the first three chapters deal with doctrine. The last four chapters deal with application. That is usually Paul's methodology. He lays down the the eternal realities of our position in Christ and what God has done in salvation in chapters 1 through 3 and then in chapters 4 through 6, the key word is walk. He says several times, walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. But to understand that, we have to understand the doctrinal background of the ascension. It is a radically different way of thinking about life than what we are taught in our culture. 
So let's go back and look at the ascension itself and get the direct teaching of Scripture on the, the ascension. Actually, there are two ascensions. There are two ascensions of Christ. The first is not theologically or significant. Well, it's not as theologically significant. When we talk about the ascension, we are usually referring to the event of Acts chapter 1, and that is the ascension. However, there is a lesser-known ascension that takes place after the cross. So let's review the events after the cross. Point number one, the events at Jesus' death. The events at Jesus' death included his soul and spirit departing from his physical body on the cross. His soul and his spirit departed from his physical body on the cross. And in Luke 23:46, we read, And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. It is at that point that Jesus' spirit goes into the presence of God. This is not the ascension. This is only his immaterial spirit going into the presence of God the Father. Next, The next item on the agenda was that his body went into the grave for three days and three nights. Then there is the resurrection before dawn on the morning of uh, of that uh, resurrection Sunday. When G- after Jesus was resurrected bodily from the grave, he saw Mary Magdalene. And in John twenty seventeen, Jesus says to Mary, when she comes up to him and she throws her arms around him, she wants to hold on to him, she, Jesus says, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. And here the word is anabino, which means to go up to the Father. There are different words used for ascension, by the way. This is the first one that we'll see. Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. And there we have anabino in a present active indicative, which means that that resurrection Sunday morning, he is what? He is ascending to the Father. Now, the third point, what happens later that same day? Later that same day in the evening, he doesn't have a problem with the disciples touching his physical body. Actually, there, if you look back at John 20:17, when you have the word clinging to me, that's a good translation. It is the Greek word hopto, which can mean simply to touch something. But in this context, it has the idea of holding on to or grasping something. It has a rather wide range of meaning. And so Jesus is saying, stop holding on to me as if Mary is trying to keep him right there. She doesn't want to lose him again. So he, he says, stop clinging to me. In other words, let me go. I have a mission, and I need to get to the Father. It is not the fact that she can't touch him physically, but the point from the passage related to ascension is that he had to ascend and its present time that Sunday morning. Then that evening, point number three, Jesus appears to the disciples, and here he has no trouble with them touching his physical body. He has made, uh, he has apparently completed salvation. See, the salvation has, as part of its primary work, 
the work of paying the penalty for sin. And then there's the resurrection, but you can't divorce the resurrection from the whole package. And then there's the final presentation of himself in heaven. We'll look at this eventually in our study, that Jesus presents himself into, to the holy, I mean to the heavenly temple. This is in Hebrews. And he presents himself as, as and sanctifies that heavenly temple by his presence. That's the completion of the mission. So when he goes when you look at the whole package of what takes place on salvation, it begins with his work on the cross, his substitutionary atonement where he pays the penalty for sin. Then you have his time in the grave. Then you have the resurrection which gives his victory over physical death. And then this ascension is is when he presents the whole salvation package as being completed to the Father, and it sanctifies the heavenly temple. Once that's done, then he returns to the earth, which would be later that Sunday afternoon, and presents himself to the apostles, where he says to them in Luke 24:38, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? And then he says, See, there's empirical evidence here that I have been crucified and I have been raised from the dead. See, my hands and my feet. See, this isn't some sort of mystical, ephemeral resurrection like you get in, in many movies that Hollywood produces. See, they don't believe in a literal, physical, bodily resurrection where death is conquered, but this is where Jesus goes out and he holds out his hands. He says, Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. So here he wants them to touch. And Mary, he's saying, don't touch me, don't even cling to me. I have a mission to finish. But now he's back and he is going to spend another uh, uh, 40 days with the disciples before the ascension itself. So that brings us to the events of the ascension itself. They're described by two of the gospel writers, uh, Mark and Luke. First, we'll look at Mark. Mark 16:19, just one verse, just a very brief summation of the ascension itself. Mark 16:19, we read, So then when the Lord Jesus has spoken to them, that is the disciples, this is actually we know from other passages that this is at the end of the 40 days, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. That is a very brief description of the ascension and session, what we will be unpacking probably for the next two or three classes. He ascends. He is received up into heaven. Now let's look at the terminology that is used here in Mark 16:19. We have a passive verb. He is received up into heaven, and he sits down at the right hand of the Father. This is... Uh, then expanded in Luke chapter 24, verse 50 and following. There we get a little more detail. Here we read, He led them out as far as Bethany. Now, Bethany is a suburb of Jerusalem. We have to have an understanding of the relationship, geographical relationship here. Jerusalem is seated just to the north, a little bit northeast of 
the Kidron Valley. So the Kidron Valley runs like this. Here's Jerusalem. Here's the temple here. This area over across the Kidron is the Mount of Olives. It was on the slopes of the Mount of Olives that you have the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, on this back side of the Mount of Olives is the small village of Bethany. Actually, it's only a two-mile walk from Jerusalem to Bethany. That's why when Jesus went to Jerusalem, rather than being bothered by the crowds in Jerusalem, he would spend the night with Mary and Martha and Lazarus in Bethany because it was close by and he could avoid the crowd. So he would stay in Bethany. So in Luke's account of the ascension, he gives us a little more detail. And we read, he led them out as far as Bethany. So he goes around Bethany, which is on the back side of the Mount of Olives, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. So he's on the Mount of Olives. Now here we have a couple of verbs that we need to pay attention to. First of all, we see in verse uh, 51, while he was blessing them, he parted from them. And this is the aorist active indicative of the Greek verb deistemi. Deistemi, which means to uh, part or to leave or to depart. Deistemi, D-I-I-S-T-E-M-I. And it means to depart. As an active voice, it shows that his will is involved and he is the one who parts from them. Now, as we go through this, these verbs, it's very important to pay attention to the voice of these verbs. And then it says, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And that word for carry is the Greek word anaphero, a N-A-P-H-E-R-O, on a pharaoh. But here it is an imperfect passive indicative. Now the tense is important. In Greek you have two, two basic verb tenses to express action and past time. The way to think about them is simple. An aorist tense just summarizes the action. It's like a snapshot. But the imperfect tense is like continuous action in past time. It's like you're rolling a film. You're playing a videotape or a DVD, and you have a picture of action taking place, progress. And this is probably a dramatic imperfect where it is picturing this this motion of the ascension that's taking place. It's not the idea isn't that Jesus just sort of dematerializes but that there is this continuous action where he is he is lifted up and it's a passive verb which means that he the subject of the verb is receiving the action of the verb in a passive voice the subject of the verb receives the action of the verb so he is taken up something is removing him from the presence of the earth he is being raised up or taken up while they watch while they are watching from them. So he parts from them, active voice, indicating his volitional involvement, and he is carried up something, carries him up into heaven. Now, 
here's the question. What is it that's carrying him up into heaven? We don't have that in Luke, but we do have that in Acts. So we jump over to Acts chapter 1. Now turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, and we'll spend a few moments making some observations about Acts chapter 1. Now remember, Luke wrote both the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles. Acts comes right after John. But actually, even though Luke and Acts are separated by the Gospel of John, they're actually part 1 and part 2 of the same account. In Acts 1.1 we read, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. The Gospel of Luke was written to Theophilus to tell him everything about the life of Christ on the earth. So the former account I made, of all Jesus began both to do and to teach, verse 2, until the day in which he was taken up. And that is our first reference to the ascension. And here we have the word analambano. So this is our third or our second word related to the ascension. Analambano. A-N-A-L-A-M-B-A-N-O. And analambano means simply to take up, to raise up. Sometimes it means to undertake something. But it is an aorist passive indicative. So here it's just kind of a summary. That aorist tense just summarizes the action. And it is an, it's an aorist passive which indicates that he, the subject, Jesus Christ, he it receives the action. Something is taking him up. That's the same thing we saw with with Anaphero, which is a synonym for Analambano, uh, the same thing we saw in Luke 24:51. Now skip down to verse 9. We skip down to verse 9. The inter- intervening period is Jesus' last parting words to the disciples, where he gives them again a repetition of the Great Commission in Acts 1:8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my uh, shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, when he had spoken these things, verse 9, while they were watching, and here you have an imperfect tense indicating action. They're, they're, he speaks, he finishes, and they're, they're watching. And while they're watching, something dramatic happens. It's never happened before. Now, we're a little jaded right now because we're used to watching uh, the Challenger, the Columbia, watching the various shuttles take off from uh, Cape Canaveral. From If you're old enough, you remember uh, the launching of satellites back in the 50s. Those of us who were kids back in the 60s remember uh, staying home from school to watch the Mercury astronauts uh Blast off! I remember when Shepard went up, and you know, thinking back now, he just went up into the atmosphere, came back down in the in the Atlantic, and and we thought that was heady stuff back then. And but we're used to watching airplanes take off, and we see the all all kinds of jets and missiles and everything. But in Acts one, none of these people had ever seen anything violate the law of gravity, and so. Jesus begins to take off, take off and to go up, and they are just 
astounded. Now, while they are watching, he was taken up. He was actually lifted up. And here we have our third word for the ascension. And this is epiro. Epiro. E-P-A-I-R-O. And epiro means to lift something up. means to lift up or to raise up. And this is an aorist passive indicative. So again, the subject, which is Jesus Christ, the subject receives the action of the verb. Something lifts him up. Something takes him up. And then we're told, and a cloud, nephile, just refers to a normal cloud, a cloud received him out of their sight. But there was nothing normal about this cloud. In fact, I think that this cloud is a manifestation of the Shekinah that we saw back in the Old Testament. If you remember the presence of the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ during the time of the Exodus is manifested through a pillar of fire during the during the night, and a pillar cloud during the day. And there was always the evidence of God's presence on the earth through this cloud in the around the Holy of Holies. And we'll see in a minute that, that this ascension and this location of the ascension is not something that just happened by chance. He's not out there by Bethany on the slopes of Mount the Mount of Olives by chance. He is there for a very specific purpose. So when he had spoken these things while they watched, he is received up, he is lifted up, and this cloud receives him. And there we have the verb hupa lambano. Hupa lambano, we saw ana lambano earlier to take up, but this is to receive up hupa lambano. H-U-P-O-L-A-M-B-A-N-O. And this is an aorist active indicative. It's an aorist active voice. That means the subject performs the action, and the, and the subject here is the feminine noun, nephiles, which means the cloud. The cloud then receives him and takes them out of their sight. So we don't know how long this happened, how uh, long this event of the ascension took place, whether it was just a matter of four or five seconds, or whether it took 25 or 30 or 40 seconds. I remember about 15, no, less than that, 10 years ago, I got a chance to go down and watch one of the shuttles uh, take off, and it was a night launch, and when that shuttle took off, you could still see the flame as it went off into the uh, atmosphere, you could watch the light as it's gradually made its way uh, to the horizon. And before it disappeared over the edge of the horizon, it was over Spain. That was fascinating. And that took a matter of about five minutes to watch that. And so we don't know whether this took five seconds or whether it took five minutes as Jesus ascended into the cloud, but he ascends up and then he disappears and he's enveloped by this cloud, and then the cloud begins to go up until it disappears from sight. 
and they're so mesmerized and concentrating on what has happened, they're just left speechless, they're just uh, oblivious to anything else that's going on around them. And we're told in verse 10 that while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, trying to figure out where he disappeared to, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. And these are two angels that appear next to them. Notice they don't have wings. They appear just as uh, men. Two angels stood by them in white apparel. Here is a picture of the temple with the Mount of Olives in the background. And then this is a... Well, I don't have another picture. We'll get to another picture in a minute. But verse 11, these angels say, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Now, we need to make four observations. See, they say that he's going to come back in the same manner in which he departed. Now, how did he depart? First of all, he went physically. That means he will return and come again physically and bodily. Second, he went up. When he returns, he will come down. Third, he went up bodily. He will come back bodily in the same body in which he left. And fourth, he went up from the Mount of Olives, and when he, will re- when he returns... He will return to the Mount of Olives. So he left. It was a physical, bodily ascension from the Mount of Olives. So when he returns, it will be a physical, bodily descent to the same place, to the Mount of Olives. So this excludes certain options. First of all, liberal theology, liberal churches... They will try to make the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 the return of Christ. They allegorize and spiritualize the passage. But his coming again is not the coming of the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, and this has become very popular in the last 15 years, you have a view of prophecy called preterism, which means past, which says, claims that the second coming of Christ is already in the past. And they try to make this an allusion to 70 A.D., that Jesus came in judgment on Israel in 70 A.D., and this is becoming a very popular position that is taught today, and I could name two or three people on uh, national radio, well-known Bible teachers, who now hold to this position of preterism. But notice... In 70 A.D., there was no literal, physical, bodily descent of Jesus Christ to the Mount of Olives. Once again, they have to spiritualize or allegorize the passage. But the angel said he would return in the same manner in which he left. And third, this means that his coming again is not an allegory for the church. See, this was the error of amillennialism, the amillennialism of Roman Catholic theology, the amillennialism of Calvin and Luther, is that they spiritualized the coming of Christ, and now he has come in the form of the church. So none of these fit. Only a literal bodily return, and this is 
what premillennialism teaches is that Jesus will return physically, bodily, to the Mount of Olives at the end of the tribulation to establish that postponed kingdom on the earth. Now, one of the implications from this, if Jesus has ascended physically and bodily, if he went up and you could watch him go up to the to be enveloped by this cloud and then to be taken on up completely out of sight into the heavens, one of the implications is that Jesus exists right now this morning at some point some place out there in his physical body. Now, that is a radically different view of the universe than you've ever conceived or been taught. He, he went through the universe, as we'll see, and right now in his humanity, in that resurrection body, see, Jesus didn't explode into some sort of big human being. He is still probably a five foot ten uh, Jewish descent human body that is finite and located somewhere in a physical space. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father in his humanity. In his deity, he's omnipresent. But in his humanity, he is seated in a physical location somewhere out there beyond the universe. And it is from that place that Jesus Christ, as a true human being, is now at the controls of the universe. He is he is the commander who runs the universe. Notice, the universe is not run by an angel. It's not run by God. It is run by a man now. He is also undiminished deity, but he is true humanity, and that true humanity, as we'll see in this study, has been elevated above all of the angels, which is the basis for our ultimate elevation above all of the angels. And Jesus Christ ascended so that the Holy Spirit could come. This is what he told the disciples, is I must go up so that I can send the Holy Spirit after me. And as we'll see, it is this ascension that lays the groundwork for the spiritual life of the church age. Now, as I said a minute ago, it's no chance thing that Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives. If you go back into the Old Testament, you see that there was the departure of the Shekinah, that is the dwelling, that word Shekinah comes from the Hebrew Shekinah, meaning to dwell, and it was the term the rabbis used to describe the dwelling presence of God in the temple and tabernacle in the Old Testament, that that Shekinah departed from the temple in the Old Testament from the Mount of Olives. There was a gradual departure seen in three verses in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 9.3 we read, Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub, that is the, cherubs over, the cherub over the Ark of the Covenant, where it had been to the threshold of the temple. So there's a progress. It moves from, the, from its place enthroned above the cherubim to the threshold of the temple. And then in Ezekiel 10.3, now here's a picture of the Temple Mount as it exists today, taken from the Mount of Olives. And so the vision of, uh, that you see in Ezekiel is from this vantage point where the author would have seen the um, would have seen the glory of God move from the center of the temple to the edge. Now the, that's not the temple there; that's the Dome of the Rock, but it's in roughly the same location. And the the glory moved from the center of the temple to the threshold. And then 
in verse uh, in chapter 10 verse 4 Ezekiel 10:4 we read then the glory of the Lord went <clears throat> went up from the cherub and paused over the threshold of the temple, and the house was filled with the cloud, and the cloud and the court was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory. So it goes from the cherub to the threshold to the uh, outer court. And then uh, in Ezekiel 11.23 we read, And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain, which is on the east side of the city. That's the Mount of Olives. So then it departs to heaven. So just as the Shekinah in the Old Testament ascended to heaven from the Mount of Olives, so Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives and ascends from there, and he will return there. Now, this is just one of those things that shows the internal consistency of the Scripture. Now, how does the Bible conceive of this ascent? How does it picture it? Well, in 1 Peter 3.22, we're told that he has gone into heaven and is now at the right hand of God. And what's the result of this? That's the second part of the verse. Angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Now, in his deity, as a second person of the Trinity, those angels and authorities and powers, that, those are terms that describe the hierarchy of the angels, he would have been over them as a second person of the, of the Trinity. But this is stating that that he in his humanity in hypostatic union as a man, as the God-man, now has authority over all of the angels. It is a man. He's not a mere man, but it is a man, a human being, someone who is true humanity, is now over the angels. And then Hebrews 4, uh, 14 and following. And incidentally... One point I want to make on 1 Peter 3.22, when it says, He has gone into heaven, that word translated gone is the heir's passive participle. Uh, actually, it's a deponent verb, which means it has a passive form and an active meaning, of peruomai. This is the word for going on a journey. So it pictures his ascent in terms of a journey from point A to point B. He traveled somewhere. Hebrews 4.14, we read, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Then, of course, in verse 15 we read, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are. So his high priestly function today is directly related to his ascension and session. But verse 14 gives us another interesting insight. It says that he passed through the heavens. This is a plural. This is a different view of the heavens than in the universe than what you'll normally get in a science class today. You see, the Bible looks at the universe as having three heavens, three tiers. The first heaven is the earth's atmosphere. The earth's atmosphere, the clouds and just the... the, the uh, layer of air around the earth. The second heaven is the starry sky. And so in the ascension, Jesus moves up through the earth's atmosphere, the first heaven. Then he goes through the starry heavens and the finite universe until he arrives at the throne of God. And we will stop this morning at that point, and we will look at what he accomplishes in that ascent to the throne starting next next Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word today. We thank you for 
the insight that it gives us into what has been accomplished for us at the cross and what has been provided for us in terms of our unique spiritual life in this church age. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their eternal destiny or uncertain of their eternal salvation, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. If you're here this morning and you have no idea where you would spend eternity if you were to die today, this is your opportunity to make that certain. All you have to do is to trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Trust exclusively in Jesus Christ, He alone being the one who can save you, and realizing that only that trust in Christ can give you salvation. It is not the result of what you do. It's not the result of your morality. You don't have to make a bargain with God. You don't have to reform your life. You don't have to do engage in any sort of religious ritual. You simply rely on the work that Christ did on the cross. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.